Once more, as we make it almost to the halfway point in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Paul is speaking about death and life, life and death. There could be nothing more important to deal with, could there? Because while we might have temporary troubles in this world, whether they are troubles at work or at school or in family or with friends, the ultimate trouble that we all face in one form or another is the end of our life. Sickness and death. This is what we are here to hear about this morning, because anybody else in the world can tell us what to do with our lives. But we come to Christ to tell us what it is that we ought to do about our death. Paul does an interesting thing here in Romans 7, though. He says the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments that most of us are supposed to know by heart, the very first part of our catechism, do not bring life but death. And then he turns it around and says, and Jesus's death is actually what brings us life. And Paul connects the commandments, life, death, and Jesus all together in Romans chapter 7 at the very beginning by talking about the ultimate life contract. I'm talking about marriage. That's where he starts today with marriage. And marriage, if you don't really think about it this way, is in fact a contract. It's a promise made between two people. In fact, in one of my favorite science fiction books, the author says marriage is much less a contract between two people, one to the other, me to Deb and Deb to me, and more a contract that Deb and I have made in front of all of you. That from now on, the church of Christ and the people of the world can look at us as one flesh, one unit, husband and wife. But that contract only holds as long as both of us are alive. This is true of all contracts, really. Once you die, the contracts that you have signed at work and for other things actually are done away with. Unless, of course, it's a loan and the bank comes after you. This is the very beginning of what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. The law is binding on a person only as long as as he lives. The same for marriage. Once a husband or wife is dead, the marriage dissolves and all of the other things that you've promised in the world go away. Now, my very, very first parish, St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Philadelphia, we had a very dear friend who told us this sad story of her very first husband who died, except that he wasn't dead. He faked his own death. He disappeared on a fishing trip, never to be seen again, and everybody assumed that somehow he had fallen into the Atlantic Ocean in New Jersey and died. When that happened, all of the contracts that he owed on disappeared, including the contract of marriage. He knew that that's what would happen if he faked his death, which is exactly why he did it. Not so much just to get out of the marriage, but to get out of all the other debts that he owed. That's why Paul brings up marriage here at the beginning of Romans 7. Now, the thing with marriage, though, and I think this is the reason why Paul uses marriage as the illustration of a contract rather than, say, a mortgage or something else, is that marriage is really about life. 
Yes, it's true that we say till death do us part. But let me tell you that when you're getting married on your wedding day, death is the furthest thing from your mind. You say the words, but you're really thinking about and anticipating the whole life that you have ahead of you and perhaps the life that will come into that marriage in the form of children. Romans chapter 7, 2, Paul says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Marriage is really about life. It's actually not about love. The love is good. It's good to build a marriage on love. Marriage is first and foremost about life. And that's something that we have forgotten as a society and as a culture. I've often heard people say, what business does the government have in deciding who loves somebody else? And my answer is none. None at all. The government's only interest is when a woman marries a man because they can have children who are going to be future citizens and taxpayers. We're going to have to go to school. We're going to use roads and buses. That was the only reason why the government wanted to get involved in marriages in the first place, because marriage was about life, stable family units and procreation, having children. Eros, the Greek word for affection or even lust for another, actually has very little to do in God's eyes or the government's in the contract of marriage. And I think that's why Paul uses marriage here as an example. Sometimes Lutherans like to talk about the debt that we owe to the commandments, the debt of sin being a mortgage something that we owe God. God's given us the whole lump sum of his relationship with us. And then we, by fulfilling the tenets of the law that God gave through Moses, are paying down the mortgage with each payment. More and more of the interest gets paid and more and more of the principal goes down. But we can never pay it off. And that's why God sent his son, who finishes off the mortgage once and for all. The problem with the mortgage illustration, though, is first of all, not everybody in Montreal has a mortgage. And a lot of people in the Middle East didn't have mortgages either. Most people in the world rent. So that's problem number one. But problem two is mortgages are awfully clinical. When you go in and you sign your mortgage, you're at a desk with a banker who's got a bunch of binders on the wall and a bunch of amortization tables, and it's all very antiseptic. Marriage is anything but. Marriage is a joyful experience that we have. We do it with front of friends and in front of family. We celebrate a meal. And yes, in Canada, we take a brief moment during the ceremony to sign a piece of paper, the license to make the government happy. But that is such a small part of everything that we are doing. In my father's house, Jesus told the twelve, on the night in which he would be betrayed, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come. Those words. We say them around Easter time. We also hear them often at funerals. But what Jesus is talking about here is a wedding. This is how Middle Eastern weddings happened. That first, the groom would be betrothed 
to his intended bride. And then the groom would have to go and make a life for that bride and the children that they hoped the Lord would bless their marriage with. And so the groom would go back to their father's house and prepare a place for his bride so that they might live together and begin a family. The church is the bride of Christ and Jesus is the groom. And he says, I am going to prepare a place for you. This is a whole new contract. In fact, we're not even going to call it a contract. We're going to call it a covenant. A testament that I make with you, my people, that I will be your husband and you will be my wife. But the first thing that has to happen then is that our first spouse has to die so that we can be free to marry another. And who is our first spouse? That's what Paul gets to in the rest of Romans 7. Because apart from Christ, we are married to the law. We are married to the commandments. We're married to what we owe God and each other. We are married to, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You will remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You will honor your father and your mother. You will not murder. You will not commit adultery. You will not steal. You will not bear false testimony. And you will not covet your neighbor's house or their maidservant or their manservant or their ox or their donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. That, you see, apart from Christ, is who we are married to. And that's a cruel spouse to have the law. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul goes on to say, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I want that Porsche. I want that house. I want that job. I want that family. I want those kids. I'm always reminded when I read this text of George Costanza and the old Seinfeld sitcom. There's this scene in one of the episodes where George has just done something truly horrific that even common sense would tell you is immoral and inconceivable as an act to do. But George is oblivious to this until finally his friends sit him down and say, I can't believe that you did that. To which George responds, is that wrong? That's what the law does to us. You see, the law comes along and suddenly we see in the commandments that the things we're doing are in fact not good, not right, not leading us on a path of righteousness, and certainly not helping us to love one another and to appreciate the love of God for us in Christ. Paul was a good Jew. He knew his spouse well. He knew the commandments, not just the ten, but all of the mitzvah that he was required to keep. And he loved his spouse as much as he could. But he found that they were a cruel taskmaster. And even at the best of times, could be abusive. 
That's what Judaism had become to him, a religion about keeping the rules, paying off the mortgage, ticking off the boxes, the kind of religion that comes to a Lord who has come to feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish and to heal the sick and to cast out demons and to raise the dead. And the only question they can think to ask such a gracious and merciful Lord is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I be doing to be doing the works that God wants me to do? Do, 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 because it's the spouse that they had and knew. The one who laid out the rules for them. And until that spouse died, they could not be free to marry another. But when Jesus mounted that cross, the cross we put him on because of our sin, the cross we nailed him to, the cross we put God himself on, what we meant for evil, God used for good. And he did it so that the spouse that was the law could die. And we would be no longer bound to the rules and regulations that were so weighing us down. And now Jesus himself could become our spouse and go and prepare a place for us that where he is, we too may one day be. Hearing what has been graciously done for us by our spouse leads us to want to live life for them. Who wants to have a nagging husband? Anyone? I can't believe you have a... Your wish is my command. Who wants to have a husband who comes in and says, why haven't the dishes been washed yet? You didn't fold the laundry right. Have you not dusted on top of the counters again? Who's going to clean out the washroom? And husbands, who wants a nagging wife? When are you going to take out the garbage? When are you going to get the car fixed? When are you going to get the lawn done? When are you going to paint the house? You do not really know sin. So you have a nagging spouse and that nagging will produce in you all kinds of sin. But what if you have a husband or wife who is always serving you, who is always doing things for you, who is always trying to be gracious and merciful, who is always putting the best construction, who, when you beat them down, only comes along and lifts you up. What do you want to do for such a spouse? Do you not love them? Do you not want to do what you can for them? And if your new spouse is a God willing to have nails driven through his wrists and ankles for you, willing to bleed and die for you, a God who is willing to suffer every evil that we could throw at him so that he could only turn around at Easter and say, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I send you. Your sins are forgiven. And I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Paul says we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We are in a new marriage, 
Our abusive spouse is gone, put behind us. And while indeed we sometimes live with the nightmares of what that was like, we turn and we see our new Lord, our new spouse, and see one who will never do any harm to us, but only seeks our good, only seeks you to be forgiven and have the eternal life that he already has in the resurrection. That you might be where he is. Maybe the best illustration of what Paul is trying to say here is Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. You see two people who are still married to the old spouse who come down that road from Jerusalem to Jericho and see that man beaten half dead by the side of the road and look down the set of rules that says, is the man half dead? Well, he might be. Well, then does he look half dead? Oh, absolutely. Well, that means if you touch him, you will be ritually unclean. Ooh, that's bad. And if you're ritually unclean, you will not be able to turn around and serve the Lord in his temple. Oh, that's really, really bad. Best thing to do, just keep going. But the Samaritan, you see, was not married to that spouse. The Samaritan didn't have that obligation to the temple. They didn't have that obligation to the law. And so the first thing that they thought of when they saw that man beaten half dead by the side of the road was he needs help. He needs love. He needs mercy. And he goes to help him up and puts him on the back of his own donkey. And at great personal risk, he, a Samaritan, takes him into a Jewish town, Jericho, and make sure that he will be looked after, risking financial disaster by telling the innkeeper, I will pay you whatever you think I owe. Oh, really? Well, it costs about a thousand bucks for him each night because I put him in the honeymoon suite and I gave him my best wine. Samaritan says, fine. I just want him to live. Because the Samaritan had a different spouse. He is presaging you and I, who baptized in that font, got married again to Jesus, who now does everything for us that he can, and most importantly, forgives our sins and promises us eternal life in his name. We no longer serve the dead letter of an old covenant. We serve a living Lord who has done everything in his power to serve you and me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.